few things. Okay, one, uh, Dr. Woods. Parter, just like the tribulation period has two parts, first half, second half. All right, let's take our Bibles and open them to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38. And the title of these two sessions, part one and part two, are the Middle East Meltdown. If you want a subtitle, you might call it The Coming Islamic Invasion of Israel. Uh, We'll talk about the Islam part of it in the second half. Uh, There's an interesting proverb. You won't find this in the book of Proverbs, but it's a Chinese proverb. Uh, It says, may you live in interesting times. (laughs) And uh, we're certainly living in interesting times. I'm not sure if I'd want to be alive during another time in history uh, because it really does seem like the prophetic blueprint is coming clearer and clearer. And uh, what we see is a rise of a coalition of nations with a hostile intent towards Israel. And it's almost as if no matter what presidential administration comes and goes... I sometimes wish the current one would go faster, but uh, no matter who's in office, uh, what their party affiliation is, I mean, this is always a front page issue, this issue of Israel with this nations that's opposing them. And I believe that the prophet Ezekiel uh, saw the complete picture, and we're just seeing the development of the picture But I believe the very things that we're seeing and that we're reading about in the newspaper, Ezekiel largely saw uh, 2,600 years ago. And you'll recall that Ezekiel is one of our exilic prophets along with Daniel. He prophesied uh, 350 miles to the east of Jerusalem during the days of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity of 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar, when he came against uh, Judah, came in three waves, once in 605, and Daniel was taken in that captivity as a teenager. And then Nebuchadnezzar came back in 597, and Ezekiel is taken in that second group. And then he came back in 586 and finally destroyed the city and the sanctuary. And so Ezekiel has his prophecies uh, 350 miles to the east of Jerusalem in Babylon, Babylonia, uh, in a, at a place called the Kibar River, mentioned in Ezekiel 1 and verse 3. I don't know if Ezekiel and Daniel knew each other, uh, but Ezekiel a couple of times in his book does mention Daniel. He knew of his reputation at least. So Ezekiel and Daniel were certainly uh, contemporaries. And, you know, before you go watch um, a basketball game, uh, the stage has to be set correctly. So the teams have to come out and they start doing warm up drills, and the bleachers fill with fans, and someone starts to sell popcorn, and you say, a basketball game is ready to start. And in the same way, that's largely how I look at the world around us. The curtain is really starting to rise. Now, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, so I don't know how long the rising will, of the curtain will continue. But, you know, the world was set up for the first coming of Christ. In fact, in Galatians 4 and verse 4, it says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. So Jesus didn't enter history at any random time. The stage was set properly. Uh, Largely it was things taking place in the intertestamental period that set the stage for Christ's first coming, like the Greek language was in place, which was one of the fullest dialects necessary to record the revelation of God's Son. Then Rome came into power, and you have Pax Romana, which means universal Roman peace, universal Roman roads, 
you have this kind of apocalyptic fervor where people were looking for a Messiah. And right at the specific time in history when it when conditions were ripe, God set, sent forth his son into the world. And if the world had to be set up for the first coming, does it not make sense that the world would be set up for the second coming as well? So to help us understand that, we're going to take a look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. And sort of the way that I've uh, broken this down is the first thing I want to do is I want to ask and answer five journalistic questions. Um, I got this outline from Mark Hitchcock. Uh, these, this is the who question. Who is involved in this end time battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Number two, the when question. And that's the sticky one. When is this going to happen? And I probably in the first session will only get through those two questions. But the third question we'll be answering later on today is the why question. What is the motive of the attack against Israel? Why are these nations attacking Israel in the last days? Then we'll answer the what question. What are going to be the after effects of this battle? And then finally, as Tommy said, we want to look at the Bible first before we look at current events. So after we examine what the scripture says, then we'll take a look at the how question. How is the world stage being set up for this very, very significant end time battle? And then following that, we'll draw at the very end seven points of application. So let's take a look at the who question. Notice, if you will, Ezekiel 38. I'm just going to read here verses 1 through 7. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog and the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you uh, about and put into your or put into your jaws hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses, horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Persia, Ethiopia, put with them, all of them with uh, shield and helmet, uh, Gomer with all its troops, Beth to Gorma from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, and many peoples with you. Uh, verse 7, be, be prepared and prepare yourself and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard uh, for them. So you run into these uh, nine names here. Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Put, Cush, Gorma, and Tagorma. And most of us look at this and say, "What are they speaking in tongues here or what, what's going on? These are very odd-sounding names. You don't read about these names in the morning newspaper. But what you'll discover is if you do a study sometime of the book of Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 through 8, I believe you'll see eight of the nine names mentioned there. I don't think Persia is mentioned in Genesis 10, but the other eight names are mentioned. And Genesis 10, of course, is a, a historical record of the table of nations. It's a record of where Noah's descendants ultimately settled uh, following the flood and following the dispersion that took place at the Tower of uh, Babel. Most of these names, all but two, come from the line of uh, Japheth, which was one of Noah's descendants. And two of these names, Cush and Put, come from the line of Ham, which was another one of Noah's descendants. And so what we can do, I believe, is trace the geographical areas where these people groups ultimately settled in Ezekiel's day. Because these names obviously were familiar to Ezekiel because he's using them. And if we can sort of figure out where they were during the time of Ezekiel, and then we can kind of track 
the modern nations today, names we use containing those people groups, then we can sort of figure out who is going to be involved in this end time battle. And one of the things that our camp, and Tommy brought this up in his presentation, we're accused of constantly is newspaper exegesis. So, you know, we're, we're accused of reading the newspaper and then reading events in the newspaper back into the Bible, which is really not exegesis at all. It's eisegesis. So in the first part of this presentation in part one, um, I'm going to be very careful and not bring up any current events. You know, I'll do that in the second part of the presentation But I want to show you that there's actually a scholarly, methodical approach you can use to document where these people groups settled. And to help me do that, I'm going to use three sources. Number one, Josephus. And particularly, I'm looking at his antiquities. Um, Book one, chapter six, sections one and two. And he does a great job of explaining... Josephus, that first century Jewish Roman historian, where Noah's descendants settled. And then the second source I'm going to use is BDB, which stands, it's a well-known Hebrew lexicon. It stands for Brown, Driver, and Briggs. And then the third source I'll make reference to uh, predominantly is Herodotus. Herodotus wrote uh, a book called Histories, Herodotus wrote that probably about 450 B.C., which was just a little over a century after Ezekiel had his ministry. Ezekiel prophesied for probably about from 593 to 573. And then I'll try to show you where I think today these people groups that these sources mentioned ultimately settled, and that will help us with the who question. So that's sort of the direction that we're going. Well, you'll notice the first name mentioned here is Magog, and Josephus in his Antiquities tells us that Magog is the group of people, he says it directly, a group of people called the Scythians. And almost any encyclopedia will tell you that the Scythians migrated from Central Asia to Southern Russia around the 8th, 7th century. And so I, from that, essentially believe that that Magog is the various groups, people groups, nations, if you will, in Central Asia. That would be all the different stands, like Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, the Ukraine. And the second name that we have mentioned here is Rosh. And people make fun of us because they say, oh, you just think Rosh is Russia because it sounds like Russia. But I want to quote uh, a gentleman by the name of Gesinius. And you have to understand that when I quote Gesinius, I'm not quoting Jack Van Impey or somebody like that. Uh, <laughs> quoting someone with a lot of scholarly weight behind them. Uh, Gesinius is known as the father of modern lexicography, which is the science and art of compiling Hebrew lexicons and dictionaries. And he did a, a study of 10th century Byzantine writers, and and this is what he concluded who Rosh is. He says, undoubtedly, the Russians. Now, we can look at Gesinius and say, well, he's doing newspaper exegesis. Well, that's kind of a hard case to make when the man died in 1842. So that was long before the Communist Revolution. It was long before the rise of the Soviet Union as a nuclear superpower. So Rosh, and there's a lot of other details we go into, but just for the sake of time, Rosh, I think, is Russia. And then he mentions two other names here, uh, Meshach and Tubal. Now, the Schofield Reference Bible identifies these as Moscow, which would be Russia, and Tobolsk, which is uh, in Siberia. And... um, a lot of people think it's heretical to disagree with the Schofield Reference Bible. You know, my hope is built on nothing less but Schofield's notes and Moody Press type of <laughs> thing. But, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a stretch to argue that because of Ezekiel 27, verse 13. 
Because Ezekiel 27 verse 13 identifies Tubal and Meshach as trading partners with uh, Tyre, which is modern day Lebanon. So it's just hard to imagine that people that far to the north back in the time of Ezekiel would be in a trade relationship uh, with Tyre or modern day Lebanon, which is I think is just to the north of Israel. So I choose instead not to look at the Schofield Reference Bible on this, although there's some very good things in the Schofield Reference Bible. But when you look at Herodotus and his histories, uh, in chapter 3, section 93 and 94, and chapter 7, section 78, he identifies Meshach and Tubal as those who were dwelling in the, in the mountains southeast of the Black Sea. So you go to the Black Sea there at the top, you go southeast, and that basically takes you into an area that we call modern-day Turkey. And focusing just for a moment on Meshach, uh, BDB, in the, if you want the page number, page, I have the page numbers and so forth in the paper, but page uh, 604, at least in the edition I used, says, describes Meshach in Persian times. Now that was interesting to me because Persia, Persian times is just after the time period of Ezekiel. Uh, Persia came to power around 539 and trampled Israel down till the Greeks came in about 331. But BDB identifies Meshach as those living, once again, southeast of the Black Sea which again would be modern-day Turkey. Now, Josephus in his Antiquities identifies Meshach as Cappadocia. And you say, wait a minute, Cappadocia, I've heard of that before. Where have I heard that before? Oh, it's in 1 Peter 1.1. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter identifies the audience that he's addressing, and he identifies that as Cappadocia and Cappadocia, once again, would be in uh, what we would call modern-day Turkey. And so Meshach, I think, is modern-day Turkey. Then just focusing uh, for a little bit here on Tubal for a minute, BDB, once again, tells us that Tubal is Cappadocia, which also is modern-day Turkey. So you take those names Meshach and Tubal, and I'm fairly confident that we're talking about modern-day uh, Turkey. And then you come to a fifth name, and this is Persia. Uh, to my mind, Persia is actually probably the easiest nation to identify because Persia has a paper trail, doesn't it? We read about Persia in the Bible, Persia is that second empire that trampled Israel down during the times of the Gentiles. So Persia was, as Tommy said in his prior presentation, the chest and arms of silver of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream that he had in Daniel 2. Persia would be the bear of uh, Daniel 7. Persia would be the ram of Daniel chapter 8. And you'll remember that Persia came to power, uh, there was a political sea change in Daniel 5. Daniel 5 is the handwriting on the wall chapter, and that's when the Persians overthrew Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon and became the second empire during the times of the Gentiles. One of the things that's very interesting about all this is Persia, by and large, was considered the good guys by, by the captives. Why is that? Because there was a prophecy given in the book of Isaiah about 150 years in advance, Isaiah 44, verse 28, and into chapter 45, verse 1, where a Persian by the name of Cyrus is identified by name prophetically, and he is the one that's going to lead Israel out of the captivity. And there's this uh, Cyrus cylinder, which records Cyrus's boasts as he took Babylon uh, Daniel 5, 5.39. And so when the nation of Israel went back into the land, they went back into the land in three waves, just like they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians in three waves. And that's where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah fill out all that post-exilic history for us. 
And those three returns happened during the reign of the Persians. And so the Persians continue essentially as a modern country. And you can just track Persia right up to modern times, right up to 1935 when the name of Persia was changed to Iran. And then in 1979, you have developing the Islamic Republic of Iran or Iran in 1979. That's when Iran became Islamicized. That was during the days of the Shah being deposed, you'll recall, and the Ayatollah coming to power. And this was during all of those long gas lines with Jimmy Carter and so forth. You know, there's one fan that Barack Obama has, and that's Jimmy Carter. Because with Obama, now we can no longer say Jimmy Carter is the single worst president in American history. But anyway, sorry to inject my bias there. And then you have uh, another nation. So I think Persia is Iran. And then you have this other nation, uh, Kush, that's mentioned. Now, Josephus in his Antiquities identifies Kush as Ethiopia. You'll see him using that word Ethiopia as a synonym for the Cushites. And I'm reading here from the uh, New American Standard Bible. And you'll notice in the verses that I read, it just uses there in verse 5, Ethiopia in the text. The Hebrew word is Cush, though. So apparently the translators, at least of the New American Standard Bible, were confident that Cush is Ethiopia because that's how they translated that Hebrew phrase, uh, uh, Cush. Now, there's a little tiny phrase here in the Ryrie Study Bible. And on this verse, it says, The ancient country of Ethiopia encompassed far more territory than the modern country of Ethiopia, since the ancient country of Ethiopia included the northern Sudan. And then in the paper, I quote the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia, which says this, The designation Ethiopia is misleading, for it did not refer to the modern state of Ethiopia. Cush uh, bordered Egypt on the south or the modern-day Sudan. So based on that, I'm sort of the persuasion that Cush would be a modern country that we would call the uh, Sudan. And then you have a seventh country mentioned here, and this is Put. And the big issue here is where are we going to put Put? And uh, BDB, again, uh, page 806, tells us that put is Libya. And also Josephus in his Antiquities, uh, 1.6.2, says the same thing. Put is Libya. So I'm sort of the persuasion that put is a country that we call modern-day Libya. And then you have an eighth country mentioned here, and that's Gomer. Uh, Josephus in his Antiquities tells us that the Gomerites are the Galatians. You say the Galatians. I've heard that somewhere before. Isn't there a book of the Bible named the Book of Galatians? And, of course, there is. That's the crowd that Paul wrote to at the end of his first missionary journey from Syrian Antioch. He wrote to those countries there in um, southern Galatia, or not countries, but peoples and cities and so forth, and he's riding to that territory because he had won them to Christ, and in his absence, about A.D. 48 to 49, they were moving off into legalism, and so he tries to correct that problem in the very first epistle that he wrote. So I think Gomer, uh, the Galatians, is what I would call modern-day Turkey as well. And then there's a ninth and final name mentioned here, and this is Tagorma. Again, Josephus in his Antiquities 1.6.1 calls Tagorma Phrygia. And you say, Phrygia, I've heard of that somewhere before. And you'll discover it there in Acts 16.6. Phrygia is an area that Paul passed through on his second missionary journey as he was moving from Galatia. Remember, on his second journey, he, Paul retraced his steps, but he moved from Galatia into Asia. 
And that's right around the time period he received that vision of the Macedonian man who said, you know, come on over here to Europe and help us. But Phrygia there, therefore, is that area in between Galatia and Asia, which also would be surprisingly modern-day Turkey. So you'll notice um, that there's a process that I went through here where I'm not looking at the newspaper. I'm basically looking at the Bible, and I'm looking at scholarly sources, trying to figure out where these various people groups, uh, most of them mentioned in Genesis 10, ultimately assembled. And so just kind of to review, uh, moving, uh, I guess, counterclockwise, put would be Libya. Kush would be the modern-day Sudan. Persia would be country that we call Iran today. Magog would be the various groups there in Central Asia. Rosh would be Russia. And then it's interesting that four names that Ezekiel mentions, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagorma, would represent uh, modern-day Turkey. Now, if you take a look at chapter 38 and verse 6, there's an interesting clause there at the end, and it, and it mentions these names, and then at the very end it says, and many peoples with you. Now, I don't know how you uh, interpret that. I interpret that as follows. Ezekiel is not giving us an exhaustive list. He's not telling us every single uh, nation that's going to be involved in this last day's battle, he kind of opens the door to other nations that might be involved as well. And to me, that is significant because one of the prophetic uh, developments that's come up, uh, I would rank this right alongside what Tommy was talking about, the Joel Richardson uh, Islamic invasion, uh, the Islamic Antichrist is a kind of a... Uh, a similar view arising at the same time by a man named Bill Salas, who, you know, he's a really he's a nice guy and he comes to our pre-trib meeting and so forth. But he has this book called Israel Stein. And essentially what he is arguing here is the Psalm 83 war. So it's not just the Gog-Magog war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's another war that's supposedly found in Psalm 83. And really the... Uh, crux of what he's trying to say is that Psalm 83 mentions the nations that are adjacent to the land of Israel, closer nations like Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, and those kinds of nations, whereas Ezekiel is mentioning nations uh, further removed. So from this, he develops um, a very uh, somewhat intricate eschatology where you have two end-time wars. And if I'm understanding his view right, essentially what you have is a Psalm 83 war from those adjacent countries. And during that period of time, Israel's borders expand because Israel comes out successful. And therefore, that sets the stage for the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39, because that invasion, as I'll be showing you a little bit later, takes place during a time when Israel is in security and peace. And since he puts Gog and Magog before the tribulation, then you've got Psalm 83 also before the tribulation. So before the tribulation even starts, you've got two wars happening. And just by way of commentary on that, even if you want to make Psalm 83 its own war, and I'm not convinced Psalm 83 is even talking about a war, which I'll share, share with you why in just a moment, but even if you want to make Psalm 83 a war, it doesn't have to be a separate war. It could take place concurrent with the Gog-Magog war because of that little clause that Ezekiel gives there in verse 6 and many people's with you. And now, having said all that, I don't even think Psalm 83 is talking about a war. And Tommy's written a lot of articles on it, and if you don't want to take the time to read through a bunch of articles, if you were just to Google Psalm 83 debunked, you'd come to, you, well, that's, that's what, that's the title of it. You'll come to a 12 minute video clip by Chris White, and I think he just raises four or five points here as to why Psalm 83 should not be 
taken as a, as a war. First of all, you read through Psalm 83 and it doesn't even describe a war or a battle. What it's describing is the various nations surrounding Israel conspiring and the psalmist or Asaph essentially prays that God would protect them from that conspiring. It doesn't describe an actual war. It doesn't describe the things that Ezekiel talks about where there's going to be seven years burning of weapons, seven months burying the dead, and those kind of things uh, as well. And beyond that, when you read through Psalm 83, basically what you'll see is it doesn't have prophetic language in it. Ezekiel talks about things like this in the latter years, in that on that day. Daniel says, 11 verse 40, at the time of the end. And you don't have any such statements like that in Psalm 83. Number three, all of the events and nations mentioned in Psalm 83 are consistent with the time of Asaph back in 950 B.C. And further, furthermore, number four, what is Psalm 83? It's an imprecatory prayer where you're praying judgment down upon God's enemies. As, and I've got many verses there, the Psalms do over and over again. And we don't take those each as independent eschatological wars. And beyond this, if you were to approach Psalm 2 with the same method of interpretation that Salus uses to approach Psalm 83, you'd have to have a Psalm 2 war. Here's uh, Mark Hitchcock. He was quoted in a DTS doctoral, doctoral dissertation, and it, he says this, Psalm 83 is kind of like Psalm 2. It's just like saying, uh, parenthesis, there is similar language, why do the nations rage against Israel in Psalm 83, close parenthesis, Hitchcock says, look, there are people who are always against Israel. Israel is always going to have these enemies. They're always going to be against them, and God is going to deal with them someday. We don't see a separate Psalm 2 war. So all of that to say, the key prophetic war is Ezekiel 38 and 39, not, uh, not Psalm 83. So that is my best attempt at the who question. And let's move into the when question. I mean, when is this Gog-Magog war that Ezekiel describes, when is this going to take place? And what you start to discover the more you get into this is it's a very somewhat complicated issue. There are probably at least seven views on this, and maybe there's even more that I'm not even uh, aware of. And so, as Robbie said about Tommy's position, you know, he holds it, but he holds it with uh, less dogmatism than other positions. And that's, that's the same with my position that I'll share with you in just a second. So I don't think I'm going to go start a church over this issue. You know, we're the first church of the whatever, two-phase view, or I don't know. It's just one of those things. And I, I, do, I don't believe that there is prophetic ongoing revelation today. But I do believe in ongoing illumination. In other words, and I'm getting this from Daniel 12.4, Daniel 12.9, as you get closer and closer to the events, it's almost as if the Lord gives us greater and greater understanding on, on things. And it talks about people going to and fro and knowledge increasing the knowledge increasing is not airplanes and the Internet. It's prophetic knowledge when you look at those things in context. And so that's why I think we need to, with some of these interpretations, hold to them somewhat loosely and give, give our leaning on it without you know, getting too in, engulfed in cement on some of these things. But what I'm going to do here is present the seven views um, I presented what I think are the, the worst ones first, the least likely, and then I'll kind of proceed to the most likely. So the first view is, this is, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, it's the preterist view. The preterist view um, is basically arguing that the Gog-Magog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39 was already fulfilled about a century or so 
after the time Ezekiel wrote in the book of Esther. So they largely believe that this book was fulfilled in Esther chapter 9. Preterist, of course, means past or gone by. And sort of their key impetus in all of this is verse 4, which describes weaponry in ancient terms. Um, It says there about halfway through the verse, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, company with buckler and shield, wielding swords. And they say this is not modern weaponry, this is ancient weaponry, so therefore this war already took place in the past. So how could I, as a futurist, take this as a future event when it's describing ancient weaponry and so forth? Well, there's a couple of answers to that. One way is maybe Ezekiel is uh, arguing analogically. Ezekiel doesn't know how to say tanks and bombs, and so he uses what he understands from his own day. But I think a better interpretation of this is actually there are going to be literal horses and tank, uh, literal horses and ancient weaponry once again used in this conflict. I was interested to find Walverd's view on it, and Walverd in his book, Prophecy in the Nations, seems to open the door to this, as does uh, Paul Lee Tan. In his book, uh, what is that called? Prophetic Interpretation, something like that. And I found this very interesting article in the Prophetic Witness magazine. And the title of it is Downgrading for Armageddon. And let me just read a couple sentences uh, from this article. This author says, Tanks had their own problems in overheating in desert conditions. It is stating the obvious to say that ancient weapons know no such problems. In fact, some are at a distinct advantage, especially in the mountains. This was the case in Afghanistan. Uh, The role of the mule and the horse in Afghan fighting was recognized by the CIA in the 1980s when the Soviet Union occupied Afghanistan. The CIA also supplied uh, a thousand mules imported from Tennessee. Afghan stallions are the most highly prized beasts, but for the poor um, soldiers, the slow-moving donkey is harder, more able to cross rivers and can transport up to two artillery shells per animal across lines uh, to supplies, to soldiers rather, cut off without ammunition. The sight of rugged Afghan horsemen leading cavalry charges across the bleak central Asian steppes is legendary. Similar testimonies abound in other areas, including Pakistan. The mules are a critical link for operations in the mountainous northern regions of Kashmir, where they also serve of the glacial uh, 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 battlefront and so forth. A mule can carry up to 160 pounds and walk up to 18 miles without resisting. And this author says, this strikes me as being another possible explanation of the weapons downgrades for some battles in the last days. So as a futurist, I don't really have much of a problem understanding this as ancient weaponry. And therefore, just arguing that this is ancient weaponry demands a past interpretation in ancient history, I don't think um, holds water. Beyond that, uh, Tim LaHaye and Thomas Sice in their book, Truth Behind the Left Behind series have a nice chart in there where they articulate the differences between Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Esther 9. Uh, Yeah, sorry about that. Mark Hitchcock and Thomas Ice. I got the ice part right, so that's the important part. But uh, (laughs) Tommy has a good joke about uh, his book with Randall Price, Ice and Price. He calls it Ice Without the PR, something like that. But, I mean, just very simply put, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Israel is invaded. In Esther 9, the whole events take place in Persia. I mean, for goodness sake. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, Israel is regenerated. There's no such regeneration going on in Esther 9. And we could go right on through this list. The second view floating around out there is this is a view that will take place at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, why do they think that? Well, because this takes place during a time of peace. 
You'll see that in verse 8 and verse 11. And since the millennium is a time of peace, that's when this war will happen. Well, that is problematic because in the millennium there's no more wars. The nations will beat their swords into plowshares. There's no skirmish until Satan is released from his abyss after the full thousand years have run their course. Um, The third view out there is this is something that takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom. And people largely think this because of Revelation 20, verse 8. And it says this, And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Oh my gosh, that's our same terms in Ezekiel. To gather them together for war. So you'll recall that John tells us that at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released from his abyss. He was not rehabilitated at all during that thousand-year time of incarceration. And he starts a worldwide rebellion. And there it's called Gog and Magog. So people think, well, this is, must be when Ezekiel 38 and 39 is going to be fulfilled. Uh, Dwight Pentecost in Things to Gum does a great job again, pointing out the differences between Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, and Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a northern invasion where the nations are specifically named, but what do you have in Revelation 20? All the nations are invading, and there's other differences that we could uh, go into. But the issue with the same name, Gog and Magog, and there's a, there's a guy named McLeod uh, who wrote a Bibsec article about this. And I think he has a pretty good understanding of it. He's essentially arguing that by the time Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, rolls around in history, the name Gog and Magog will be famous because that's where a famous battle happened. So therefore, you measure all subsequent battles by the very famous Gog and Magog invasion. It's very similar to how we use the word Waterloo today. Waterloo is a very famous uh, battle in history. So when everybody has a problem, they say, I'm fighting my Waterloo, fighting my battle of Waterloo. They're not saying the battle of Waterloo is resurfacing, but they're analogizing it to something that happened in the past as a point of reference. And so that's, I think, how the phrase Gog and Magog is used Other people will argue that the Gog-Magog war will take place at the end of the Great Tribulation period. I think that's what, if I understood Tommy right, that's what Joel Richardson is teaching, something to that extent. And Revelation 16.16 says in one of the final bold judgments, it says, and they gathered them together to a place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon or Mount Megiddo. And so people say, well, that's when the Gog-Magog war is going to take place. But again, you'll notice that differences outweigh similarities. Dwight Pentecost, again here, is very helpful. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's really not an ongoing battle. But in Armageddon, there is a long battle between the armies and the Lord. Uh, kind of jumping down to the bottom here, uh, and I can't go through every one of these. I explain them in the paper. But in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's no massive blood flow recorded. But at Armageddon, the blood is going to flow from the horse's bridles for 200 miles. And other issues that we could go into. But, you know, I've got two cars in my garage. They, they look similar. I mean, they both have a steering wheel and an engine and a glove compartment. I could draw a lot of points of similarity between those two cars, but similarity is not the same thing as equality. I can't say car A is car B on account of the similarities. Those are two different automobiles, two different years, two different uh, automobile makes and makeups and so forth. So similarity is one thing, but you can't rush to the conclusion that similarity equals equality. Because what you can do with a lot of these views is say, oh, yeah, there's a few superficial points of similarity, but look at all these differences. 
And now we get to uh, one of the views that's very widely believed today, and many people today argue that this battle will take place before the tribulation period uh, even starts. And depending on who you're talking to, you've got to watch their language very carefully because they each nuance it just a little bit different. Some say it could, not has to, could happen before the rapture. Because if you say it has to happen before the rapture, you've just damaged eminency because the rapture can happen at any moment. So they say it could happen before the rapture. Other people say, well, it's going to be post-rapture, pre-70th week, which to me is a very interesting possibility because in most of our prophecy charts, like the one I use all the time, um, like this one, we have the rapture occurring and then the 70th week of Daniel right after it. And we sort of assume that the rapture will occur and then, pow, the 70th week of Daniel will occur right afterwards. And it's interesting that when you go back into older commentaries like Clarence Larkin and Bullinger, they never made that same assumption. In fact, I've found language in Larkin and Bullinger where they both give a year. They think there could be give, they gave a year of 25 to 30 years between the rapture and the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. So probably a better prophecy chart would be like the one uh, that J.B. Hickson has. You'll notice he's got the rapture, and then he's got the 70th week of Daniel starting, but notice there's a time of preparation. So people that hold to view number five are essentially arguing that this event is going to happen perhaps during that time of preparation. That's when Islam takes a hit, according to this view. And there are a lot of really good people that hold to this. Uh, Tim LaHaye, Chuck Missler, Tommy, although he says loosely, uh, Randall Price, Zola Levitt, Tom McCall, Mal Couch, Joel Rosenberg, Ron Rhodes, uh, Stanley Moghan, who I'll refer to a little earlier, David Cooper, and then uh, also uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And some problems with it are verse 11. Verse 11 says this, And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that are living securely. And you say, well, how can this battle take place during a time of peace before the Antichrist even comes to power to guarantee Israel's security. And the, and the answer is, they focus on this word security. And they say, well, Israel is, to a very large extent, living in security today. Arnold Fruchtenbaum talks about, look at how successful Israel has been in propelling its enemies in 1948, 1967, 1973, and so forth. The problem with it is, when you look at the Hebrew, you don't just have one word there, you have two. The first word... Uh, Batak is security, and I think that's the word translated unwalled villages, but there's another word here, shakat, which means at rest. And if you look at BDB, it refers to this as a time period not just of security, but you look at that word in BDB, it means quiet and undisturbed. Not just security, but quiet and undisturbed. Is that the state of Israel? Today, uh, that green area represents Muslim countries. That little tiny red dot there is the nation of Israel. And you remember last summer what broke out with rockets being fired. Uh, this was just after I had left uh, Israel on a trip with Dr. Price. Um, it's just hard for me to believe that Israel today is not only living in security, prior to the Antichrist coming and guaranteeing her security, but also a time of tranquility where she's quiet and undisturbed. And beyond that, when you start really looking at some of the language in Ezekiel 39, it seems to me that it's talking about things that are going to happen at the end of the tribulation period, not before the tribulation period even begins. For example, in chapter 39 and verse 4, 
in chapter 39, verses 17 and 18, it talks about the birds of prey coming to feast on the dead corpses. All of the dead people assembled, all of their corpses assembled because of this war. The birds come and gorge themselves. Now, if you go over to Matthew 24, verses 27 and 28 sometime, and Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18, what you'll discover is those two passages place this gorging by the birds at the end of the tribulation period, chronologically. And a bigger problem... I think with this view is if you look at Ezekiel 39 and verse 22 as it describes the aftermath, what's going to be the result of this invasion? It says, and after the Lord intervenes, it says, and the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. And then look at the very last verse in chapter 39. It says, I will not hide my face from them any longer. For I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So what you have at the end of this is a converted Israel. Now if, and it depends on which interpreter you're talking to, but if the whole battle with if both chapters 38 and 39 are happening before the tribulation period even begins, I think we have a problem because the whole point of the tribulation period is to convert Israel. Isn't that what Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says? Alas, for the great day, the day is great, there is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. The point of the tribulation is to convert Israel. Israel, at least the remnant, so God will fulfill his covenants through them. And this view, if I'm understanding it correctly, is arguing that you've got a converted Israel before the tribulation period even begins. Now, one of the things that advocates of this view do is they get real fuzzy with some of the language. In verse 22 and verse 29, here's Stanley Moghan who holds this kind of view, and this is how he explains the conversion. He says, well, certainly one outcome of this war will be the salvation of many Jews. It does not require the wholesale conversion of the Jews. It's better to understand this as a recognition among all that God is at work without necessarily experiencing a genuine conversion. Nevertheless, God will use dramatic events of this war to help bring many Jews to faith, whether they, whether in the immediate aftermath or in conjunction with other events during the Great Tribulation period. So he's saying when he's analyzing verse 22 and verse 29, he's saying it's not a full-fledged conversion of the nation. But just look at the verse itself. Verse 29 says, For I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. That's a conversion. And then in verse 22, Israel will know that I am the Lord God from that day onward. So I think Charles Feinberg has a far better interpretation of those verses. Verse 22 and 29, he says, Those verses teach a complete return of Israel which will occur after the defeat of Gog and his confederates. Ezekiel summarized his prophecies of hope and restoration. When he stated that God will have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, he had in mind that all previous restorations were partial. Now a universal and final restoration will take place. It was God who allowed them to go into captivity. It was he who will see to it that they are regathered. Indeed, it is he who will ensure that no one is left out of the land. Feinberg does not interpret verse 22 and verse 29 as some kind of partial conversion. I mean, this is a complete conversion. So I don't think, uh, as much as I've wanted to move into view five, um, there's things of it things about it that have bothered me where I haven't been able to fully convert to it. So what is my view on it? Okay, well, here we go. There are in the text um, five timing clues which orient us to a proper time period as to when these things will take place. The first clue is Ezekiel 38 and 39 take place in the restoration section of the book. And you have to understand that the book of Ezekiel has three parts to it. Chapters 1 through 24 
are Ezekiel's prophecies against Judah, chapters 25 through 32, are Ezekiel's prophecies of judgment against the surrounding nations, and then chapters 33 through 48, where our two chapters are that we're studying, deals with Israel's future restoration. I was really at a loss on how to interpret the book of Ezekiel and sort through it until my professor, Charles Dyer, used this overhead one time in class. And I've asked him if I could use this in subsequent presentations, and he gave me permission. But see, what this shows is the symmetry of the book of Ezekiel. Chapters 1 through 24 are symmetrical to chapters 38 through 48, 33 through 48. In the first section, God uh, commissioned Ezekiel and his mouth is closed. In the last section, God opened Ezekiel's mouth and recommissioned him not to preach judgment as in the first section, but glory. In the first section, it's judgment on Judah, chapters 1 through 24. In the final section, it's the restoration of Judah, chapters 33 through 48. In chapters 1 through 24, you remember the Shekinah glory of God departs from the temple just before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. Yet in that final section, the glory of God returns. So you see how 1 through 24 are symmetrical to chapters 33 through 48, and the fulcrum that balances those two sections is the, very, the judgment on the nations in chapters 25 through 32. So what is my point? My point is you cannot make this a past battle the way the preterists do because it's in the futuristic section of the book. This is not something that has already happened. This is something yet to come. This is from the uh, chart book that Tommy is involved in, but it's in that same section with the Millennial Temple, chapters 40 through 46. It's in that same section with the redivision of the tribal territories during the millennium, chapters 47 and 48. It's in the same section with the very famous Valley of Dry Bones prophecy, chapter 37, and others. So the fact that this battle occurs in that final section obviously should tell us it's related to the future, not something that has happened in the past. A second timing clue is the expression, the latter times. You'll see that in chapter 38, verse 8. And then a third timing, so that pushes it into the future. The third timing clue is this will take place in the last days. You'll find that in chapter 38, verse 16. Now you've got to get your last days separate. Last days... There's the last days of the church. There's the last days for Israel. How do you know if you're dealing with the last days of the church or the last days for Israel? Context will tell you. And people want to lump all last days statements in the scripture together. But when Paul says in the last days, perilous times will come, it's not talking about the last days for Israel. It's talking about the final days of the church as it doctrinally deteriorates. So when you do a study of last days in the prophetic writings, and I have the various verses mentioned in the paper, you'll discover that those references all refer to Israel's final tribulation and restoration. So these have to be related to Israel's final restoration and tribulation. And then we have a fourth timing clue. This battle will happen after Israel's regathering in unbelief, but before her final restoration. Notice, if you will, chapter 38 and verse uh, 8. Very interesting verse here. It says, After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come to a land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. So this is talking about some kind of regathering that must occur before this battle. Why is that? Because what is described here is this battle will take place 
against Israel in unbelief, and the result of it will be Israel's conversion. We saw that in chapter 39, verse 22, and chapter 39, verse 29. And so what the, uh, Randall Price, and I completely concur with him, hold to are basically two regatherings of Israel. The first regathering is what I would call the present regathering in unbelief. The second regathering is a permanent regathering after Israel is regenerated. In the first regathering, she's restored to part of the land. In the second regathering, she's restored to all of the land. The first regathering, she comes back in unbelief. Second regathering, she returns in faith. First regathering, she's restored to the land only. Second regathering, she's restored to the land and the Lord. The first regathering is setting the stage for the tribulation or discipline. The second regathering is setting the stage for millennial blessings. And the way Ezekiel describes it is it has to take place in between those two regatherings. Because the nations come against Israel while she's in unbelief, then the end result of it is her conversion. And this first regathering, we saw evidence of it in 1948. So I would say that this battle has to take place sometime after 1948, but before Israel is converted. So that narrows the time frame a little bit more. The fifth timing clue is this battle will take place while Israel is living securely and peacefully. You see that in chapter 38, verse 8. You also see it in chapter 38 and verse 11. Particularly verse 11, as I mentioned before, there's two words. One communicates security. One, The other communicates tranquility. So at this point we have to ask ourselves, well, when in the history of Israel is she living both in security and tranquility? And the answer is there's only two times. One time is in the Millennial Kingdom, because in the Millennial Kingdom they will beat their swords into plowshares and the nations will learn of war no more. But I can't put this battle in the Millennial Kingdom because there's no more wars in the Millennial Kingdom. This is describing a war. So the only other time of both security and tranquility that I can think of is connected to Daniel 9.27, where the man of sin arises and enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel, guaranteeing her peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, a parallel passage, says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. And so what I am seeing here, and this is not my view, uh, this is basically the traditional Dallas view going back to Dr. Pentecost, Dr. Ryrie, Dr. Walvert, is it somehow connected to the first half of the tribulation period because that's when you find Israel living in tranquility. It's the only other time other than the millennial kingdom. Now, what you'll discover as you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 is this. You've got peace and then war. Israel is living in tranquility and then war breaks out. Peace, war, peace, war. I've, I've read that before. I know where I've read that before. That's in Revelation 6. That's what the first two seal judgments are about. In the first seal judgment, the rider on the white horse, the Antichrist, comes forward and guarantees peace. And then in the second seal, verses 3 and 4, warfare breaks out. So what I think is this battle begins primarily connected with the second seal as the nation is dwelling in security because of what has happened with the first seal judgment. And that's the traditional Dallas view. But you see, even that view has problems. Why, why does this have problems? Because of Ezekiel 39 talking about things that happen at the end of the tribulation such as Israel's conversion. That's towards the end, to the best of my understanding. Such as the birds of prey feasting on the corpses. That happens towards the end, as I mentioned before. And so I've always been troubled by this. I mean, every view I've looked at has problems. 
And then I had to audit a course at Dallas Seminary, and I just picked this course, Bible Chronology. And I had this professor named Harold Honer, and he walks into class one day, and he started talking about a bunch of prophetic stuff that had nothing to do with Bible chronology. But he lays out an article in front of us with his view, which I had never even heard before. And you can read of that view in the um, Dwight Pentecost Feshrift. I'm sorry, the Donald Campbell Feshrift. Essays in honor of Donald Campbell. And Honer, it's a, it's a fairly short article, but I read that and I said, this, this is it. Uh, this is the view that I now gravitate for, towards, and he's talking about two phases here. He connects most of chapter 38, peace to war, with the second seal judgment. And then he connects chapter 39 with the events of the tribulation period. So what you'll notice is he does not, and I think this is the mistake that a lot of us have made with this. We've assumed that the two chapters have to take place at the same time or concurrently. And Hunter says, no, chapter 38 is one part of the tribulation. Most of chapter 39 would be the end of the tribulation. Now, doesn't that fit with Ezekiel's other prophecies? Doesn't Ezekiel describe prophecies as more of a process? For example, in the prior chapter, in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones... Yeah, I'm getting ready to wrap up, Robbie. Okay. Uh, my, my departure is at hand, I guess. Um, in the Valley of the Dry Bones, doesn't it talk about those bones being assembled into a human body? And we take that as the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. And then in the very same vision, it talks about the breath going into the body. And we take that as the regeneration of Israel. So we would look at Ezekiel 37 as a process spanning potentially over many decades. Why can't Ezekiel 38 and 39 be taken as a process? And we're making this assumption that both chapters have to be fulfilled concurrently or consecutively or simultaneously, I guess would be a better way of saying it. And I think that's where a lot of our interpretations are going astray. And I credit uh, Dr. Honer for making me aware of this other possibility, you know, that I didn't even know existed. So the current view I hold is Honer's view, which is the two-phase view. Largely believe Ezekiel 38, at least verses 1 through 16, are fulfilled as we transition from seal 1 into seal 2. And then I think chapter 39 is speaking more of a aftermath of that judgment and what is going to happen as a result of these things. And that helps me put chapter 39 into the second advent and helps me handle Israel's conversion and the uh, birds of prey feasting on the carnage and so forth. So the best that I can do, uh, that's the best I can do with the who question and the when question. And you say, well, what about Islam? Well, you have to come back after lunch (laughs) and we'll deal with some other questions related to that. So anyway... Where did Robbie go? Do you want to take questions now when we have one minute, or do you want to wait and save them till the end of your second presentation? How about no questions? No questions. No, we could do it after. Okay, we'll, we'll do it after because of time.